passage. Father, thanks. Thanks that, uh, Lord, you're not only good and perfect in and of yourself, but you overflow in that perfection and that goodness to us all the time. Lord, we have life because you gave us Jesus. That opening song, so profound, so simple and so profound. We have no other rock, no other means, Lord God, of standing in your presence, holy and whole apart from Christ our Savior. And we would ask that we would be filled again this morning with more of his spirit, that we would see him more clearly, that we would aspire to be more like him. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, John one twenty nine. this church derives half of its name from this verse, John one twenty nine. You remember Isaiah the prophet uh, said that uh, there was going to be a voice in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And along comes John the Baptist, and he's that guy. And he's related to Jesus. If you've read the Luke account, uh, you know chapters 1 and 2 of uh, John the Baptist coming to old Zechariah and Elizabeth and Jesus coming through Mary. So they're related. But John sees Jesus as they've grown up. They're young men now, around 30 years old. And John the Baptist has been preparing the way for the Messiah, for his Lord, for his relative Jesus, in the baptisms there at the Jordan. And this says, John 1.29 says, The next day he, John the Baptist, sees Jesus coming to him, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. Now, it's interesting, at this point, Jesus hasn't done anything, right? Before his baptism, there's been no miracles, there's been no signs, there's, there's no atoning work yet. He's simply been born, he's grown up, he's been faithful to his father all along, but his public ministry hasn't started. So he arrives on the scene, and John points out this is the Lamb of God. So John's introduction is, here is a lamb. A lamb is going to take away the sins of the world. We don't live in that age. We don't live in that time. But, you know, you're a Jew. You're living in or around Jerusalem or Israel. And someone says, there's a lamb. You know what you're, you're thinking about? You're thinking about sacrifices. You know, we don't do this. It's not the first thing in our mind. But for them, the temple is right up from the Jordan, the temple up there in Jerusalem. And remember, every morning, every morning, and every evening, there's smoke coming from that temple because a lamb has been slain, its blood has been poured out, its carcass is burned on that altar for the sins of the nation every morning, every evening. And for every family, once a year on the Passover, every year your family unit might not be, might not be just your family, might be you and your neighbors or whatever, but it was a group that could consume a lamb. And you had to offer the lamb for your family. You understood this, lambs, goats calves sacrifice and and the lambs that was a normal part of life you'd sin specifically you'd go up and you'd buy a lamb and you'd have it offered for your sins or you'd felt favored by god life had been good you want to give thanks what do you do you go offer a fellowship offering you offer a lamb so when the jews are here in this language there's a very close association it's not just some <clears throat> artistic depiction oh he's like a little lamb it's a sacrifice it's a bloody sacrifice you think too of the words from isaiah isaiah not only talked about john the baptist but of course the one that he would would proclaim the messiah jesus the messiah think of 
Isaiah 53, 7, part of that great messianic passage where it says that the Messiah as the suffering servant, he would be like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. There's this whole thought of the sheep are being slaughtered, but there's not a sound to be heard. They're going to their death. They're going to be imminently slain, but there's not not a single sound to come. And that's what the Messiah would be like. He'd be the silent sufferer taking on himself the sins of the world. Uh, we're in our series, uh, Heroes and Villains. And, and let me say something too. Again, this is just uh, thinking of this on the way home. This series, Heroes and Villains, we say Jesus is the superhero. And, and in that sense, we say Jesus uh, exemplifies what, what our spirituality should be like as humans, not as God in the flesh like He was, because He was faithful. So faithfulness is the standard for us to emulate Jesus the superhero. And if you're a villain, it's the antithesis of that. We're faithless. We don't fulfill God's call on us. We don't respond to God as our maker or our redeemer. Um, but, but we don't, <laughs> don't want to lose sight here. Um, none of us will ever succeed the way Jesus did. And so thinking of that opening song again on Christ the solid rock I stand, we aspire nobly to faithfulness. That's the call. And a bunch of the folks we're looking at, they're, they're uh, singled out in Hebrews 11 to say they were faithful and this is the way they were faithful. And we want God to be able to say to us, well done, you've been faithful. But we don't ever want to lose sight that we are also faithless. That there are times and circumstances where we are not measuring up. We're not faithful. And at that sense, we don't want to, make, uh, we, we don't want to sort of resort to a faithfulness on our part that brings about a righteousness. We're righteous only in Christ. And out of that righteousness, we aspire nobly to be faithful. But we fail all the time. Jesus remains singularly the only one who never fails, who's always faithful. But that's not true of us. It's what we're looking for. It's what we emulate. It's what we want to aim for. But you and I will never quite get there on this earth. Okay, so we want to be faithful, but none of us will be faithful as Jesus was. Um, as we look back, we're still in the Old Testament. started, we're going through chronologically through the Bible on each of these heroes or villains. <clears throat> I want to point out here, thinking back to Isaac and, and where we're going sort of this morning with the picture uh, related to Isaac and Christ. If you look back to King David, so further down the line from Isaac, you look back to King David, you remember he's a shepherd on one hand, but when he comes in as a king, he's a warrior. He clears out Israel's enemies. He establishes the boundaries of the nation. And when he wants to build a temple, God the Father says, that you can't do that because you're a bloody man. And I'm going to have a man of peace build that temple. But David as a warrior king, he's a picture of Christ. And you think of Revelation 5, the lion from the tribe of Judah, that's the other uh, text we get our, our church's name from. Uh, Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah. He's a warrior. And you look at Revelation 19 and it trades on some more symbolism out of Isaiah. When Jesus comes back, he has a rod of iron. He has a sword that comes out of his mouth. And it says his raiment is stained red because it's bloody. This is straight out of Isaiah. Because he's tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. He is a warrior king, just like David. 
When you look at David's son Solomon, his very name means peace, shalom, he's reigning in the golden age of Israel because dad has cleared the land. So Solomon reigns from the Euphrates to the river of Egypt. And gold is running in the city and it's a time of peace. And that looks just like Jesus. And by the way, we'll see these in their own lessons coming up. That's just like Jesus ruling over the new heavens and the new earth. That golden age of Israel was just a tiny thought of what would look like the new heavens and the new earth. Solomon, in the beginning of his reign, not the latter half of his reign, beginning of his reign, looking like Jesus ruling over a new heaven and a new earth. But it's Isaac, it's Isaac and, and it's the suffering servant in Isaiah that looked like Jesus as the Lamb of God. And that's why we're looking at Isaac this morning. One of the key themes that you'll see, uh, Isaac is a pretty passive figure in the Bible. So you think about Abraham, he leaves home, he has a fairly exciting life. He's a shepherd on one hand, but he, he gets an army, he goes and, and saves his uh, servant, his uh, nephew Lot. Um, He's got some stuff going on. He's got a sacrifice, which we'll talk about in a minute. You look at uh, Isaac's uh, cousin, Lot. He's got an exciting life. <laughs> Not a life we want, right? Do you remember uh, back uh, several weeks, Lot was a, a, a reminder that you can be saved and still lose everything else. A cautionary tale. You can be saved and lose everything else. And he, he was an exciting life, but not one I would want. But you get to Isaac, this guy that Abraham and Sarah have been waiting for for a long, long time. And what you get is, is frankly, it's a fairly boring story. He has one high point of excitement that we'll look at. But other than that, it's a pretty boring story. And it's interesting, and this is part of where we'll go this morning. One of the takeaways, in fact, if you take nothing else away from this morning, take this away. Isaac lives a quiet life of faithfulness. He's a quiet life of faithfulness. And guys, I'll tell you, in the time and the place we live where anybody can be famous in a day, I'm not knocking social media, but Facebook, how many likes do I have? How important am I in my culture? How many people know who I am? That's the measure of success for us. And frankly, it's the measure of success oftentimes in the church as well. But it's a form of idolatry. Is it possible for us to be so satisfied with Christ that we can, like Him, faithfully fill up the lives of quiet faithfulness that most of us are called to. Because that's one of the key examples of the life of Isaac. It's not a flashy life. It's not an exciting life. But it's a life of quiet faithfulness. Can we be satisfied with a life like that? That's one of the key questions. I think one of the key challenges of his life. Uh, God's in control even when our desires and hopes have been thwarted. We'll see that here in just a minute. And God is ultimately responsible to bring about His will and His kingdom. That's another lesson we'll see this morning. We're bit players. So with all of that, let's get into the life of Isaac. Remember in the life of Abraham, and I say you remember if you were here for these lessons, you, you might remember. If you're not, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll try and cover bases on that. But the greatest demonstration of faith in the life of Father Abraham was when he willingly obeyed God and took his son Isaac up the mountains of Moriah to offer him there as a burnt offering. And you remember, this is the only thing really, at the end of the day, this Isaac is the son of his love. He's the thing he cares about more than anything else in the world. And God says, go take him up and offer him there as an offering to me. Uh, listen to this. This is from Genesis 22, verses 6 through 10. We've pointed out, by the way, before, this was a picture of Jesus going up. It's the same general area, Mount Moriah. 
and Golgotha where Jesus was crucified, same area. And it's a great, great picture. One of the key pictures in all the Old Testament of the Father and the Son cooperating in, in this atoning work of sacrifice that Jesus would take on as the Lamb of God. So we looked at this before from Abraham's vantage point, but this morning we're looking at it from Isaac's vantage point. Okay, so think about your Isaac when we read this text. So Genesis 22, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. He laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. So fire to kindle the wood that would burn the sacrifice, the knife to slit the sacrifice's throat. So they both of them went together and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, father, here I am, my son. Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went up, up together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. So we said, Abraham's trial in offering up his son is also this great illustration of Isaac, and not only Isaac specifically, but Isaac as Jesus, as a type of Jesus, as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. So, you know, Isaac had worshipped with dad before. Isaac knows what, what worship looks like. You take the animal, you build, you build usually with uncut stone, you build a rough altar, you lay on it the wood, you slit the throat of the animal, its blood bleeds out, you put the carcass on the altar and you burn it up. So he knows what's going on as they go up the mountain. And so you've got the question, you've got two of the three necessary elements, but where's the lamb? And dad says, oh, well, God will provide the lamb. So again, from Isaac's point of view, I'm walking with my dad. He's told me God's going to provide a lamb. I'm looking for the offering. But then at some point, dad tells me to hold my hands out, maybe behind my back, and he ties them up. You can imagine. And then he says, now I want you to lie down on that wood. You know, the light's coming on, isn't it? Because he's now getting it. I'm it. I'm the lamb. I'm the offering. Dad didn't tell me before. I didn't know this was what was going on. But once I'm laid down on that wood, there's no confusion left. I'm the lamb and my father is about to slay me. I wonder how much confusion there was going through his head. Really? Is this it? Is this what? Is this the end of my life? This is it? But isn't it interesting? What do you hear from, from Scripture, from God's vantage point? What does Isaac say here? Nothing. He's silent like a lamb led to slaughter. Now think of this. This is one image. There's tons of images of this scene. How old is Isaac? This immediately becomes one of the questions. How old is he? So Scripture doesn't say. So we've got to extrapolate a little bit. So he's carrying enough wood on his back to consume an animal carcass. Guys, that's a bit of wood. Uh, it'd be more than this in the image. Uh, animal carcasses don't burn readily, and it would take quite a bit of fire. He is big enough and strong enough to carry a heavy load of, of wood on his back so that if he wanted to dispute what his dad was doing, he could have resisted old father Abraham, who's a hundred plus years old at this time. 
and he doesn't. And what you've got is a picture of a lamb that is led silently to the slaughter. And the first act of faithfulness you see in the life of Isaac is silent acquiescence, silent submission, silent faithfulness to the will of his father. No resistance, no word. He doesn't accuse, he doesn't question. He simply lets his father act on him like a lamb that would be offered at any other time in any other sacrifice. Isaac was a willing, silent participant in foreshadowing the Lord Jesus as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And I'm sure, I, I can't imagine, you know how things run through your mind so quickly, too, too quickly to sort of think about, but in a second, you could have numerous thoughts run through your head. How many thoughts went through his head? Confusion, I'm sure. But the picture is he's silent and he's submissive. Perhaps, and this is one of my key takes for this morning, perhaps more often than not, faithfulness for us requires not great things by way of our accomplishments, but the willingness to accept a life or a death that wasn't part of our plans or desires. I think this is key. This is key. Um, Sometimes we think of faith or acts of faith, probably more often than not, as that God tells us to do something and so we go and do it. So God says, God says something and I obey. I positively act. But that's not the faithfulness you see here on Isaac's part. This is faithfulness when life is acting on me. This is faith as acquiescence. This is faith as submission. It doesn't require me to go out and do something important or noble. It requires me to simply accept what God is bringing into my life. And guys, this is no easy act of faith. And I know tons of you here, I know lots of stories here, I know that lots of you have faced these very kinds of things. Life acts on me. I'm not going out to do something. I'm simply living with consequences or results or things I never wanted and I don't deserve, let's say. And faithfulness means silently submitting to God my Father's will, even though this has nothing to do with what I wanted. It's not where I thought I'd live. It's not where I thought my life would end, but it's what God has providentially allowed and faithfulness requires of me to submit to the will of my Father. That's a huge lesson in the life of Isaac. And again, I just think in our day, in our time, we're so busy about measuring success by metrics that you can see by actions that sometimes we forget that a lot of the life of faithfulness is simply acquiescing to what God's allowed our life to be or to hold or to, or to contain or what God doesn't allow to bring into our life. So this is a huge lesson in the life of Isaac. Life acts on me. Do I remain faithful? Do I continue to say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit? Father, I trust you in this. And again, in Isaac's case here on this altar, it was the acquiescence of silence, like Isaiah 53. Faithfulness is needed on our part as much when life acts on us as when we are positively acting faithfully as an action. Uh, this came up, by the way, in Sunday school this morning. If you don't come to Sunday school, 
uh, small ad, I would encourage you to. It is a great time to sit and soak in the conversation and the lessons that are brought forth. Mike Patton talked on this this morning. In fact, he referenced the same verse. But in the Christmas story, thinking about Jesus' birth, and think of this, Gabriel, the angel, goes to Mary, Jesus' mother, and she says, interesting language, God the Father is going to overshadow you. The Spirit of God is going to overshadow you. You're going to be acted on by God. You're not going to do anything. You're, just, you're going to be acted on. And what does she say? Let it be to me according to your word. I'm God's servant. Let him do whatever he wants. Let him act on me. Let him act in my life any way that pleases him. And that's what you see, part of the key lesson of the life of Isaac. I'm submitting Father to your will. I may not understand it. I may be confused. It's not what I thought would happen. But I'm acquiescing to your will. So Isaac's life starts with faithfulness as submission. Huge, huge lesson. He's also got a life of quiet faithfulness. Uh, you see this in his life. Again, this is sort of the boring element, if you will, of his life. Um, apart from the traumatic, memorable episode that begins there in Genesis 22, you end up with, with this really quiet life. He lives as a single man until he's 40 years old. By the way, if you're unmarried and you're 40 or more, no worries. <laughs> Acquiescence. He lives as a single man until he's 40. Um, we're passing over the lovely story where Abraham sends back to Haran to get a wife for Isaac, passing over that, but he gets married at 40. He and Rebekah live a quiet life, doesn't tell much about them till they're 60 before they get their twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Uh, like his father Abraham, he travels down to Gerar. He's afraid. Rebekah's lovely. He passes her off as a sister, gets a little bit of trouble, but nothing, nothing untoward happens or occurs. He gets in some disputes, just like Abraham had with nephew Lot, about land and water, but nothing untoward happens there either. And he ends up in the land of plenty. He becomes not only a shepherd, but he's a farmer. There's lots of water. Life is grand. And that's his life, guys. That's the rest of his life. There's no mountains to conquer. There's no victories to seize. That is the rest of his life. Now, God hasn't praised Isaac for any of the things up to this point. We'll look at this in just a minute in Hebrews 11. That's the, that's the sum of his life. That could be your life or mine. I was a farmer. I was a rancher. I was a businessman. I was a cleaner. I was whatever. Oh, and he lived his life and they had kids and this is what he did. Oh, wow. Is that it? Yeah, that was it. But he was faithful in all of that. Not entirely, of course. But he was faithful as a rule of life. He's a homebody. He never leaves the land of promise. He faces no great trials. He slays no giants. If we measure success the way the world does today, Isaac would not measure up. He would be a failure by today's success. Had some kids, raised a family, paid his bills. That kind of life. He wouldn't be seen as successful. But he faithfully fulfilled God's good plan. And this is where most of us are going to live. And again, the big take take home for me today is this is this element of faithfulness in the lives God gives us not the ones we dream of not the lives of the rich and the famous or others but faithfulness in the quiet lives God is giving most of us that means as moms and dads husbands and wives kids students employers employees 
you get the picture just in the in the thing that forms most of the biggest part of all of our lives are we simply being quietly faithful in the lives god has given us and what you'll find what you'll find is this if we're not satisfied with christ nothing else will satisfy you and so you've got to reach out to significance in other areas of life because you're looking for satisfaction we're made to be satisfied. We're made, the hunger, C.S. Lewis talks about this. You got a hunger and you're wondering, why do I have that? Because you were made for something. And so if we're not filled up and satisfied with Christ, we will try to fill those souls up with something else. So for Christians who have Christ, we have everything we need to be satisfied, not only in life and time, but in eternity. But what you'll find is that itch in the back of your mind or your soul that you say, there's got to be more, there's got to be more, there's got to be more. Christ is the only thing that will fill that up. If, you, if we don't get it in Christ, we'll look for it in other ways. And then we start measuring ourselves by whatever metric is convenient either to ourselves or the culture around us. And, and that's a formula for, for a, a lousy life. You'll never be satisfied. And you'll end up doing things that won't satisfy anyway. So Isaac's this great picture of finding faithfulness and satisfaction in the quiet lives God's calling most of us to live. Think of Luke 16, 10. Jesus said this, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is dishonest in much. So how are we doing it? just being faithful as kids growing up in our parents' home or someone going to work to pay bills or moms being home to change diapers? I was struck again, spent 10 days with a daughter who just delivered a baby. I thought, you know, if you're a mom, God bless you. God help you. Because I can't and nobody else can in a certain sense. Up all night with crying babies. It's like, I'm thinking, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. What a trial. You know, if you don't feel satisfied, if this is it, and all you feel like is I work, I work, I work, and I work to feed this baby who keeps crying and wants to eat again, changed again, it's like, man, what a challenge. Is that your life? God bless you, honey. You know, get through that time. Be faithful. It's a challenge. I'm just saying, for most of us, life, it's challenging. It's hard. And a lot of people don't know what our faithfulness looks like or requires. But God does. And that's the thought here. Quiet faithfulness, whatever it is God's giving us to do. Now, uh, for all that, Isaac is not mentioned in Hebrews 11 uh, for being an offering, nor is he mentioned uh, for a life of quiet faithfulness, though I'm telling you, I think for me, those are the big takeaways. He's mentioned for something else entirely, and that's what we'll look at now. Uh, Hebrews 11:20 says this, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Now, if you just heard this and you don't know the story, that would sound nice and simple, but the story is not nice and simple. And that's what I want to work through now. On your study sheet, this section, Roman numeral three, Isaac faithful in blessing blind. So briefly, if you don't know the story, so Isaac and Rebecca, they've had those two twin boys. Esau comes out first, red and hairy. Jacob, which means supplanter, follows him, clutching at his heel. And they have those boys, and those boys grow up, and, and Jacob is Rebekah's favorite, and Esau is Isaac's favorite. It's not a good thing, by the way. You see this in the scriptural stories. 
not good when parents favor one child over another. It always leads to trouble as it does here. But Isaac's life, he's an old man now, and he's old and he's blind. And he's thinking while he's still got his mind and he's still here, he wants to pass on that paternal blessing that was part of the Old Testament that you see routinely. And it wasn't like uh, if one of us says to another, God bless you, it's not like that. The Father's blessing was this very specific thing that was like a prophetic utterance that when the Father blessed, it was not only a blessing, but in a sense it was a prophecy over that child. And it could be positive or negative. You see this at the end of the book of Genesis. Jacob to his sons. Um, so Isaac says, I want to bless my oldest son. That was normal. Esau. And so I tell Esau, my favorite older son, hey, go out, do that thing you do so well. Go out and hunt. Bring back some game. You cook me up a meal. I'm going to eat your savory meal. And while my soul is in this happy state, I'm fed and I'm, I'm content and I'm thinking about what you've provided, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you the blessing. So Esau's all over that. Good, he runs out. But Rebecca's heard what's up. And uh, she and Jacob go into league to deceive Isaac, to steal the blessing he intended for Esau. Now, I don't want to be too hard on either of them. Rebecca knows something, and I think if, if Isaac was thinking, he might have remembered this and it might have changed his plans. His plans get upended. If you know the story, you know that. Uh, but God had told Rebecca something before the twins were born. God had said, those guys, they're wrestling in your womb because it's almost like two nations. They're, they're opposed to each other in the womb, and that's the way their lives are going to be. But God had said, the older will serve the younger. And Rebecca knows that Isaac's getting ready to pass on the Abrahamic father's blessing on Esau, the older one. And maybe that's motivating her. Anyway, so they come up with their plan. They hatch. She's going to cook the meal, savory meal. And because Jacob's nothing like Esau, he puts on Esau's clothes so he smells like him. He puts on goat skin on his neck and his hands so he feels like him. And he takes the savory meal into Isaac. Now remember, Isaac's blind, so he's just listening. And he, he just doesn't quite feel right. And he says, well, the, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the smell and the feel... That's Esau. And he questions him, are you really Esau? Are you really Esau? And Jacob just lies. Oh yeah, I'm really Esau, your, your eldest. Yeah, that's me. And so, in this blind state, but trying to be faithful, Isaac blesses Jacob, thinking it's Esau. And he says, this is Genesis 27. He says, see the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you. Nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. Be Lord over your brothers. Opposite of what God had intended originally. May your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you. Blessed be everyone who blesses you. And of course, those last words are the words from Genesis 12, what God had blessed Abraham with. This is part of the Abrahamic blessing that Isaac has now put on Jacob in this deception. Isaac on his part, physically blind, trying to be faithful, probably not remembering God's promise to Rebekah. So at this point, he's blessed Jacob, but it's a blessing had by deceit. 
He's blessed thinking it's Esau. He's he's speaking faithfully on his part, but without knowledge. So, So now, Esau comes back. And Esau has got the wild game. He cooks the meal. He comes back in and he says, Dad, I'm back. Eat, eat this meal I've prepared for you so you can bless me. And I love this. So earlier, uh, Isaac's silent when Abraham's going to offer him up. And when, when Esau, Isaac says, who are you? He says, well, I'm Esau. And the text says this. It doesn't say he yells, he screams, he erupts. It says he trembled violently. <laughs> he didn't say anything. He's just freaked out he's trembling violently and you could hear his voice rising as he as he says well who is it that came and he says and i bless them and they will be blessed and then he gets it that he had blessed in his blindness he had blessed jacob not esau now esau is ticked this is a pathetic passage by the way and we'll look at this later in the life of esau but listen to esau He pleads, he says, have you but one blessing, Father? Bless me even also, my Father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. So, Isaac his father answered and said to him. Now, this is Hebrews 11.20. Isaac knows who he's blessing here. He knows this is his favored son, and he knows he cannot give him the blessing he wanted to. This is eyes wide open faithfulness in blessing Esau. And what does he say? Away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be. By the way, this this is an image of the area that that, uh, Esau got. South and east of the Dead Sea. Away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live. You shall serve your brother. God said you would and you're going to. Uh, But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. This is the blessing. This is the blessing that Isaac spoke by faith on Esau, his favored son. Do you think that was easy for him? I don't think it was. He has basically said you're going to live in a dry, barren desert land. You're going to have to fight your way through life. You're going to be submitted to the brother you despise. For most of your life, and eventually that will end. Is that the kind of blessing you would want to put on your favored child? Or on anyone that you loved or cared about or wanted good for? But this is when God says Isaac spoke by faith. When he said this to Esau, because this is in fact what God intended for Esau and his descendants. And we'll look at him more fully later. He's livid. You you remember he sold his birthright to Jacob cheaply. Now he says, now my brother has stolen my birthright as the elder son. I was supposed to get the blessing. I want to kill him. Well, Rebecca hears this too. So she says to Isaac, hey, Jacob needs a wife. And I don't want him to get a Canaanite wife like Esau has. I want him to go back to the place I came from, to my family, and get a wife there. And so Isaac's like, okay, fine, that's what we'll do. Now remember, this text we'll read next, uh, Isaac and Jacob, their last interaction is Jacob is lying and deceiving his father. 
And Rebekah says, hey, we got to send Jacob away to go get a wife. And Isaac says, okay. And so this is Genesis 28. Isaac calls Jacob. Isaac calls Jacob. Jacob's going to come back in. And the last thing we know is he lied to his dad. He cheated his brother. He's a deceiver, just like his name says. So what's Isaac going to say to Jacob the liar, to Jacob the cheater? What's he going to say to him? Isaac calls Jacob and blesses him and directed him. Don't take a wife from the Canaanite women. Go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. Take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. That's interesting. No words of recrimination, no anger over being tricked, no resentment. Nothing else was said between them, right? Scripture records nothing else. So the last interaction, my son has tricked me, deceived me, lied to me, and I call him in and I bless him. This is Hebrews 11.20. This is Isaac's eyes opening to what God wanted. And I suspect at least at this point he remembers God's word to his wife Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. God's will for those two sons was not Isaac's will. Isaac, his will was not what God the Father wanted. And I think the light is growing, is, dimming, is, uh, is glowing on for him. You remember eventually he gets on the wood on the offering, he realizes I'm it. Right? This growing realization. I think that's what happens here too. He's physically blind, but there's the growing realization, oh, this is what God wanted all along. And this is what God spoke to Rebecca. And here it is happening. And so even though he's physically blind, his spiritual eyes are wide open and he gets it. This is Hebrews 11:20, and this is what he says to his son. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and your offspring with you. Not to Esau, the land of promise. That you may take possession of the land of your sojourning that God gave to Abraham. So think of this, what Jacob stole, Isaac now gives freely. Isaac invoked the blessing of God on Jacob by faith. That's Hebrews 11.20. Isaac believed that God was at work even in the deception in order for Jacob to be God's choice as the one who carried on the line of promise that would lead to Jesus, the Lamb of God some point Isaac gets it. His spiritual eyes are open and he realizes my will wasn't God's will. God's carrying out his purposes. I didn't realize it, but I was opposed to them. And God's working out his will anyway. This is where I want to wind down. Uh, when life, do you find this for, your, for yourself? When life's going according to my plan, I believe God's in control. And when life's not going according to Mike's plan, I wonder if the God of the universe has fallen asleep or fallen off the throne, if the omnipotent, omniscient, all-loving, all-wise, all-powerful God, somehow he's missed a beat. He's unaware of what's going on. Do you, do you do the same thing, maybe, a little? My plan's going forward, God's in control. My plan's in the rubbish heap, God must have fallen off. Isaac blessed both sons by faith. And, and neither blessing were what he would have chosen at all. Opposite at least. Nothing that he wanted. And yet he believed God was at work. 
And God's word had said, the older will serve the younger. And he sees it and he gets it. And this is where most of us live, I think. Isaac was deceived. God still got the blessing of Abraham where he wanted it. Now, when we say this, we're not excusing Jacob. We're not approving of lying. We're not excusing others today when they lie or cheat. But we are saying we can still trust God to bring life out of death, even when there is betrayal. If you haven't experienced betrayal in life, you will. So if you have, you can think back on one or more of those betrayals in your life and you can remind yourself God has chosen to use even that betrayal to my good and for His plan. That's a big deal. That's a huge deal. A betrayal is one of the hardest things, I think, in life to get over. Jacob had betrayed his father and his brother. And Isaac still speaks in faith. And you and I need to be able to look at even the betrayals we suffer or experience in our life and say at the end of the day, the sovereign God is still in control. He's promised to use this for my good. And His sovereign plan is not thwarted. I acquiesce when life acts on me by faith. I choose to trust God when life's not going the way I wanted it to. When I'm lied to, like Isaac. When I'm cheated. When I'm betrayed. That I can still say at the end of the day, God is still sovereign. He's still in charge. Everything is still working to His purposes and the accomplishment of His will, not only big scale, but in my life as well. We can bless with Isaac if we have that same kind of faith, that realization, God's in control even when I've been betrayed. As we wind down, maybe just do a personal assessment. Um, all of us will have hopes that are never fulfilled in this life, which is a good thing. Life is, this life isn't big enough, frankly, for most of our desires and hopes anyway. We have eternity to come. But what hopes do I need to give to the Lord that I realize that's not going to happen? I'm not going to have that. They're not going to get what I wanted for them, that son, that daughter, that friend. What hopes do I need to give to God? Do I need to trust Him for? What loss do I need to trust the Lord with? Again, life acts on me. I'm on the receiving end. I'm not the conqueror. I'm the conquered in some sense. Life overwhelms me. In that sense, what, what do I need to trust God with? What betrayal do I need to place in God's hands? Again, I think these are some of the hardest things to get over. Because there's a sense of, it's not just that you've suffered a loss or a hurt. If I punched you, you'd feel physical pain. If I'm your best friend, you don't just have physical pain. You have emotional confusion and loss. Betrayal is one of the hardest things to get over, and yet that's exactly what you see in the life of Isaac. What does faithfulness to Christ require of me here and now? In my quiet life that others may not be aware of, what does faithfulness here and now look like for me? Life didn't go the way I thought it would. What do I do instead? Like Isaac, we commit ourselves to be faithful in spite of what we see as setbacks. We trust God, just as he did. God's still at work. When life acts on us, we choose to believe that God's orchestrating all things toward His own goals and plans for our life because they cannot be undone by circumstance or by others. And that's important to remember. 
Other people are not in charge of your life. No matter what they do to you, God's ultimately in charge of your life. Everything that happens in your life and mine, God causes or he allows. It can't be otherwise. He's omnipotent. And as Christ's own, he loves us. He intends to bless us forever in his presence. We can trust this God when life acts on us and we're confused and we don't get it. Okay, let me pray and we'll stand and share a scripture together. Lord, God, help us to trust you when we don't understand. When life acts on us in ways we would rather it didn't, help us to trust you as Isaac did and most fully as Jesus did. In his name, amen. As the worship team comes up, guys, would you read with me? This is First Chronicles. This was a great verse for me, thinking about the fact that God is ultimately in control of my life, of wealth, of riches, of health, of anything else you can think about. Let's uh, share this together, and then uh, we'll worship in song. First Chronicles 29. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name.